You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another edition of the Drive Time Show here on The Voice of Islam Radio. Today is Wednesday, the 22nd of November, 2023, with myself, Shajil Ahmed, and also Usman Ali Anjum here in the studio with me. Assalamu alaikum. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm good. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much uh, for asking. Um, you know, what we're going to be talking about is quite interesting. And if you guys are familiar with the voice of Islam, we have spoken about these topics in the past as well. Um, especially the, I mean, both of the topics are very relatively important. But the first topic, if you were listening this morning to the voice of Islam, to 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 the breakfast show, uh, we also spoke about this as well. And that is what, we, what we're going to talk about in the first part of the show, the first hour. We're going to talk about world conflicts, the rise of humanitarian crisis. Um, just before we actually get into that, in the second hour, we're going to be talking about something which is very, very dear to us Ahmadi Muslims, and uh, which is basically the core of our the core of our religion, which is the Holy Quran, and we're going to be talking about that different things in regards to that obviously there is so many different avenues that we can actually go through and uh, and actually talk about when it comes to the holy quran but you know as you know just to give an example we can talk about prophecies we can talk about um different prophets which came before and how we take heed from that how that's a lesson for us in the present time and in the future how the how Allah the Almighty has mentioned in the Holy Quran different events that are going to happen, which have already happened, some things which are going to happen in the future, and some things which uh, which 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 you know if we look at we we begin to wonder that fourteen hundred years ago how did a a how did a man in living in a desert right surrounded by literally nothing, if this is not the word of God if if this is man made or man written or man dictated how can he say all of these things how can he prophesize all of these things um things which you know which which occurred uh during his lifetime things which occurred years later centuries later in fact in this day and like i mentioned in the future until the end of time as well but a little bit more about that uh, a little bit later on firstly as i mentioned we're going to be talking about world conflicts and the rise of humanitarian crisis. Just before we actually start this topic, actually, before we start this segment, I just want to say that you know what, whatever we say, it's it's we do want to. We're not we're not we don't want to say anything which is biased. Yeah, we from the very outset. I just want to say that we are going to be unbiased. We're not sort of um, taking sides uh, when we, when we talk about conflicts. Obviously, when there is conflicts happening. If there is injustice, then we need to call that out. And that is our duty. Um, wherever we see injustice, whether that's done by um, superpowers, whether it's done by a small nation, whether it's done by a, a world leader, whether it's done by the West, whether it's done by the East, whoever does um, or portrays themselves as being nice, as being a good leader, as being a good person, but then on the other hand, they, they, they. What they do is that they, they are very unjust, they're cruel, and they do a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of things which are against human rights. And that is what we're going to be t- 
talking about today. If you want to get involved with us, the number to call in as always is 0208-687-7878. You can also um, get in touch with us via our socials at Voice of Islam UK. But the lines are open. Please do give us a call and tell us what you think about this. Tell us who is to blame and what is or how we can actually come about this and resolve the issue as well. We'll talk about this a little bit later on as well, how we can resolve this issue because this is the voice of Islam and Islam has the the answer to all of these questions. But as the sun sets on our troubled world today, we gather here to, to confront the stark reality of devastation left in the wake of conflicts that stench far and wide. And the, the, strength, the stench actually reaches far and wide because it's such a long stretch that we can actually understand from this and from previous conflicts that this is not something which is uh, which is uh, you know which has just come about right now this has been happening for so long and the sad reality also is that sometimes we see that the nations don't take heed from previous lessons isn't it we see what happened before we we had world war 1 what what happened after that we had world war 2 uh, it hasn't even been a century it hasn't even been a hundred years since World War II, but still, it seems as if history is repeating itself. And that is a sad reality, isn't it? Yeah, of course. I mean, even today, hmm. I think there's a lack of understanding of the effect and the widespread devastation yeah. that's going to be a result of this. And I think like maybe we haven't grasped the human cost of these uh, global conflicts. Um in terms of Islam, if we look at the current world conflicts, we should just ask ourselves: Under what circumstances are we engaged? Uh, are we allowed to engage yeah. um, in a war which is um, just? Yeah. So, I mean, in the Quran, we're told it's for self-defense. For example, in chapter twenty-two, verse forty, it said, "Permission to fight is given to those against whom war is made, because they have been wronged, and Allah indeed has power to help them." There again, it's just it's about if you've been wronged and not it's not a thing of you know to gain any materialistic yeah. or any worldly benefit yeah exactly. it's more just in self defense exactly and that is something to remember as well that permission is only given to those according to the holy quran permission is given to those people who have been wronged they've been kicked out of their houses they've been exiled um uh, excluded boycotted all of these things have been happened have been you know uh, g- given to them and th- the way that they reacted was that they showed patience and then Allah the Almighty after a very long time granted the early Muslims after 13 long years of persecution he granted them permission to to not go out there and wage war but to defend themselves and if there was a nation if there was a people if there was a tribe if there was you know any particular organization who actually came and tried to invade them or hurt them or attack them in a, in, a, in a face of war then the Muslims were allowed to defend themselves and that is when permission to fight was granted but even then right, the Holy Prophet of Islam the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and we've spoken about this numerous on numerous occasions that even during times of warfare there, there, there are particular rights that you, that you need to obey such as you know Everyone has heard this, but just for the benefit of our listener as well, you can't go around killing innocent children. You can't go around killing innocent women. You can't go around killing innocent old uh, old men or people who are not even engaged in the war, people are not even fighting. 
people who are living at home, they've closed their doors, they don't want to be part of the war, uh, for whatever reason, we, you can't go out there and do collateral damage and just swipe out the whole city, swipe out the whole town. You, you just, that's literally not allowed. You're not allowed to chop down trees. You're not allowed to chop down especially those trees which bear fruit, such as date trees and other trees as well. So I think even that yeah. shows Islam's beauty where exactly. it's, it's literally, okay, fine, you think of, yes, human life. And mm. also it's it's literally trees as well. Yeah, literally. So it just shows how encompassing the, the teaching of Islam is and I think it shows the beauty of mm. it as well where despite all that, um, that you've been wronged, mm. there are still these, way, these um, things, for example... Uh, not to mutilate yeah the, the body was, yeah exactly exactly so, so this just in my from whenever i read it you know the, these things are sort of things that you know give, just show the beauty of the religion and the teachings that and how uh, complete and encompassing it is that every aspect is taken in and it's then given the solution and how it's then given the solution to every aspect of your life and every sort of um Condition or state or anything every, that could any, occur. Any scenario that, exactly. that that you're faced with, just like you said, Islam has the solution for that. Whatever problems that we are facing, that we are looking at right now, in today's day and age, right? Whatever we look at, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's in Eastern European countries, whether it's in the Southeastern, um, you know, China Sea or what, that whole belt there as well. Wherever tensions may be, Islam will definitely have the solution for that. And something which is quite interesting as well, we spoke about this in the in the morning today, but a lot of because there's a lot of false information and misinformation, fake news, whatever you may call it, right? Wrong information, particularly. Now, there's a lot of that regarding Islam, and one of you know one of the good things or a silver lining you can say out of this conflict is that people who didn't know anything about Islam, apart from what the newspapers, the media, the tabloid newspapers, all of these press media, whatever, whatever they portrayed because they have their own agenda, isn't it? So whatever they said about Islam, that is what they thought about Islam. But one of the silver linings of this conflict or this war is that they have actually said that, you know, look at the people of Hamas. Look at the people of Gaza. Look at the people of, of, of Palestine, of Palestine, and look at their resilience. Look at the way that they are showing patience. What is in their religion that teaches them this? So they opened up the Holy Quran, they've looked at it, they've said, you know, this is such a wonderful teaching. And they've acknowledged and they've accepted the fact that, you know, this is a beautiful teaching and there's nothing like this, nothing like what they were actually told by the media. So, like I said, this is a, one of the silver linings, um, sort of light at the end of the tunnel or one thing that, you know, one positive thing that we can actually take out from this. But, just to give a little, you know, before we get even deeper into the um, to the topic and then talk about the solutions, what we can actually do. Of course, this is one of the solutions, like we just talked about, like we just said that even if people, even if the Muslims were allowed to go to war, it was because of the fact that they were wronged, because of the fact that they were persecuted and all of these different things that we listed. But the way that they were that they, the way that they actually went into the war, there were rules, conditions for that as well. Now, we see that Israel or you know other nations when they ha when they go to war with a particular nation, right? Especially when it comes to the Middle East, there's a lot of collateral damage. They drop a bomb, and then the whole town or city, whatever, gets destroyed. Most of it gets destroyed. 
And there's people in there. There's you know hospitals which are getting bombarded. There's even mosques, churches are getting bombarded as well. But what does it say in the Holy Quran? The Holy Quran says that if this permission to fight this defensive war wasn't given, then these you know churches, these synagogues, these cloisters, these mosques where the remember you know the remembrance of Allah, the Almighty, is done the most, they will be destroyed. There won't be any sort of religion left. So this is why the reason to fight was granted so that the religion can actually prevail. And that is, you know, that's just one of the solutions that we spoke about as well. But like I said, before we actually do that, some some sort of, uh, I mean, some history that we go, that we want to give to you guys as well. With the, with, with the founding of the state of Israel in 1948, the story takes place in the middle of the 20th century. A proposal in November 1947 was made to divide Palestine into two states, one for the Jews and one for the Arabs. Now in Palestine, Jews made up just 30% of the population and they control less than 5% of the region that was historically Palestine. However, they received 55% of the land under the United, the United Nations proposal. And that, is what, and that is what happened. And then obviously everyone knows the rest, but the plan was turned down by the Palestinians and the Arab supporters. And the Zionist movement agreed that the idea... Uh, because it supported the, the, the creation of a Jewish state on, on Arab land. However, they didn't like the suggested borders and wanted to take over more of the historic, you know, the, the actual place which was Palestine, the country which was Palestine. Now, by 1948, the Zionist forces took control of many villages, cities, making many Palestinians exile their homes, leave their homes. Even they, they literally kicked people out kicked Palestinians out of their homes, even though the British mandate was still in place. Where, where's the justice in that? Where is the justice in There is no justice in that. Now, by 1949, over 700,000, right? That's not, that's literally, that's near a million. Palestinians had been made refugees and more than 13,000 had been killed by the Israeli military. Now, Israel had over 78% of the historic Palestine and the remaining 22% became known as the West Bank and the Gaza, Gaza Strip. Obviously, there's, you know, one's, in a, one's a little bit in the east, one's a little bit in the, in the west. Now, thousands of Palestinians were forced to leave their homes, flee their homes because of this historic event, which also laid the basis for the you know, decades-long conflict. And now we see it's happening again. Um, the conflict, conflict is quite... You know, it's quite, uh, it's quite, it's quite rife, and the situation is quite dire. I think it's actually quite good that you gave a, a bit of a insight to the history, hmm. because some people who may not be informed might think that this is something which has only recently started, or from yeah. the seventh of yeah, October. Yeah, that's, this has been going yeah, on for seventy-five true. plus years. You know what the funny thing is? The funny thing is, is that some Israelis they hmm. think that they have been there their whole life. That's not the case. I'm mean, seventy years ago. You guys came there. Uh, it's not as if you know their grandfathers and their grandfathers and their elders they were there no that's not that's literally not the case they were made refugees then they were given that land and they took over they literally came in and they said get out and they were literally made to leave the Palestinians they were made to leave and they literally forced them out of their homes and now 70 years 70 odd years have passed and some people because, they, because some of them have been so brainwashed 
This is what they think. They think this is this is the reality that they have been there since forever. But that is literally not the case. And um, present day, um, what does the present day the present day look like? So in the present day, again, we're faced with a number of increasing difficulties. Um, so there's territorial conflicts and you know Israel status. So all these things. Hmm. Um, and I think one thing is there's conflicts in the world. So as today's topic is actually other places as well. Hmm. So Palestine is one. There's also the Horn Africa. Um, so there, there's other ones. Yeah. And um, but in terms of the one that we're still focusing on, um, Gaza is still under attack and West Bank is still under control. Hmm. So I think that's the. And I think again here we should, if we were to implement Islamic um, teachings, yeah. that's probably the only way out of this difficulty. Hmm. Yeah. And to solve this issue, solve this issue. Uh, over fourteen hundred Israelis and thirteen thousand Palestinians have died, um, just in the last three weeks. That is, so yeah, literally. I mean, you can you can just you can just tell by by these statistics that how dire the situation actually is. Now, according to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, they they said that nearly six hundred thousand internally dis, uh, displaced are actually sheltering in uh, 150 UNRWA facilities, which is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, with nearly 420,000 seeking refuge in 93 of the agency's shelters in, uh, in middle Khan Yunus and Rafah areas, uh, which are you know, further towards the, towards the southern uh, parts, of the, parts, of the, parts of the area. Now, this is an increase of around 14,000 civilians in just 24 hours. So these are literally, I mean, obviously we can go on and on. I mean, more than thousands have been reported missing and are pre-assumed to be trapped or dead under, dead under the rubble as well. The largest medical facility in Gaza, Shifa Hospital, is now treating around 5,000 patients, uh, many, many times beyond this normal figure, which is, just you know, which is just under a thousand, so they're doing more than double, triple that as well. So that's literally what the situation is over there. Um, let's speak to let's speak to our guest who's on the line with us to tell us a little bit more in regards to this. Michael Yoshi, who is a retired medical Methodist clergy in the California Nevada Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, he's also the co-chair of Friends of Wadi Fukin. Who, which is an international partnership with the Muslim Palestinian village of Wadi Fukin, lo- located in the Bethlehem, the Beitullahim district of the West Bank. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Peace be upon you as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you provide an, an introduction to friends of Wadi Fukin and the specific focus of your, you know, your organization in relation to the conflicts in which is happening in Palestine? Sure. Um, first, I, w- I would like to express my deep condolences to any of your listeners who have lost loved ones in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there's been killings in the West Bank as well. And so I just wanted to um, make sure that uh, we take a moment to remember them. And uh, thank you for that. For me, it's important to make that spiritual um, connection to those who are really grieving today Absolutely. and in the last several weeks. Um, Friends of Wadi Fukin is a partnership that we started among United Methodists in uh, the United States, particularly in the state of California, with this small agricultural village um, of Wadi Fukin 
It's located in the Bethlehem District in the West Bank, right on the Green Line. Um, Wadi Fakim has been impacted greatly by the illegal settlement of Batar Elite, uh, which has been in village land over the years since 1980s. And they, the, the settlement has a population of 60,000 and it's expanding to 100,000 in contrast to the village, which um, has a population of about 1,500, primarily farmers in the agricultural village. Um, the village is a very beautiful place. Um, I've been there, you know, over a dozen times now um, during our partnership and, you know, it has a tr- very tranquil life, if not for the life under military occupation and the continuing uh, land confiscation that continues to take place for the expansion of the settlement and its infrastructure, as well as uh, property demolitions, which take place periodically, um, really um, limiting the, the, the people there from really uh, living their life fully. Um, our partnership, uh, as I mentioned, started in 2009, and we have three areas of work that we do. One is in community development. We support projects in the village that um, are there to help support the development of the village um, in ways that we can support them. Uh, we commit to taking uh, trips to the Holy Land. Uh, we frame it as Holy Land pilgrimages with a Palestine um, narrative and exposure as we always make sure to visit the village and then we visit other Palestinian communities as we have opportunity to do so. And then thirdly, we do advocacy work uh, primarily here in the U.S. Um, to um, advocate for um, the, the halting of the uh, expansion of the settlement as well as the uh, land confiscations and property demolitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, as we can see, um, the West Bank and Gaza are connected because of the military control of Israel over all of Palestine. And while our eyes are on Gaza, and, and, and deservedly so because of the thousands that have been killed, um, we, are, we are focused on our support for the village of what uh, located in the West Bank. Mm-hmm. Talking about talking about you know the, the the conflict and how that impacts the daily lives of the people in Wadi Fukin. Tell us, can you tell us a little bit more in regards to this as well? And what are some of these specific challenges that they that they are fa- we, that they are facing? We spoke a little bit about this before as well, but if you can give some more insight in regards to this. Yeah, with the current situation now, since uh, since October October seventh, the village has been on a lockdown. Um, that has uh, led to work stops and uh, closure of schools. Uh, they have very limited access to shopping. They usually would go to Bethlehem in about a 10-minute drive to Bethlehem for shopping, for groceries, and they have very limited access for that because of the lockdown. They've had flying checkpoints set up, uh, limiting their leaving the village. Um, the settlers have been given arms. Uh, the mayor of Batar Elite was shown to distribute arms to them uh, there have been drones hovering over the sky, and also recently there were um, olive harvests going on in the village, but they were harassed by soldiers who came mm-hmm. into the village and took their olives, uh, took their tools, and would not let them basically do their harvesting for the season. And uh, one of the farmers was actually beaten up. And then uh, just a few days ago, there was uh, two homes that were demolished in a marble factory that was also demolished in the village. So the, um, all these things that have taken place prior to this latest um, situation taking place in Gaza um, have continued on but have accelerated plus uh, the lockdown that's taking place. Hmm. Now, we understand that 
the friends of Wadi Fukin is involved in environmental conserva- conservation efforts. But how are these environmental issues interconnected with the conflicts? And what in- initiatives well, are you guys working on? Yeah, so with the construction of the settlements, uh, settlement in uh, in the hillside of Wadi Fukin, there's been very deep environmental impacts because um, they have uh, intentionally drained sewage into the village, uh, buying their, their crops in the village um, and the farmland. Um, there's great environmental impact there. Construction runoff has often also impacted the um, uh, natural water springs. There are several natural water springs in the village that they rely upon for their water supply. Hmm. And uh, a couple of them, several of them have been dried up because the construction runoff uh, hits into the village. And of course, the building of settlements itself is is, is um, uh, not in congruence with the kind of natural habitat of the area in the village itself. So their their presence has been imposing environmental uh, impacts upon the village as well. And they're doing a lot to try to educate folks about that as well in the context of trying to stop the land takeover from taking place. Mm-hmm. Could you tell our listeners about a little bit more about Wadi Fukin and how the community is actually affected um, so much about you know the the different strikes which are, the, the collateral damage I want to talk about and what makes the area yeah. unique particularly you know why does it make it so significant? I think for us like we've always talked about Wadi Fukin as being a microcosm of the West Bank and so what's happening there kind of reflects what's happening in the entire West Bank and I think we know that before October seventh there was a massive uh, aggressive uh, movement in the West Bank to take all of the land and to to push Palestinians out. And so this is happening, happening simultaneously to what's been taking place in Gaza, the situation there. So we might say it's collateral damage, but I think it's collaborative damage is the way where I, I would put. Mm. And that the collaboration of, of uh, looking to exterminate Gazans and, and to take over all of Gaza uh, or to, to drive people out, I think there's that same sentiment. Um, and that's been echoed in the Israeli uh, government, particularly from the, the right-wing forces that have been publicly saying it's time for the Arabs to go. Um, publicly, um, we've seen that kind of uh, uh, back that's been going on on the ground in uh, Wadi Fakin and other West Bank villages as well. So I think we're at a very critical point you know, for Palestinians as a whole, in Gaza and the and the situation is uh, continuing to be to be intense by the day. Um, Wadi Fukin itself, because of the accumulated land confiscation orders, is threatened from the east and west and the north and south of the village as well. It affects the villages to the north of them and the villages to the south as well. And so uh, just keeping a very close eye on what's taking place and uh, very concerned, of course, about uh, their future existence. Yeah. And in yeah. terms of these um, conflicts, um, what sort of humanitarian assistance and support does the Friends of Wadi Fokin provide to the community? Well, we, in the past, we have helped support, one of the biggest projects we helped support was the building of a soccer field in the village, uh, which was built on land subjected or vulnerable to land confiscation. Uh, this was back in 2015 or so, and it was a very big project. And uh, to the degree that it's still standing and existing, um, I think is is uh, a witness to its success. And the villagers have had the opportunity to have a safe place for kids to play soccer, and to gather together, you know, in recreation time and, and get, you know, mind off of the occupation. Um, the latest project we were working on was uh, uh, a guest house project 
things to be built. And the idea there was because we that every there would be a place for people to come and visit and stay in the village. And both projects, the soccer field project and the um, uh, the guest house project, would be kind of economic stimuluses as well to help provide people jobs for construction and also the maintenance of them as well. Um, so we were doing that. We were right in the middle of that when uh, the situation broke out in Gaza. And so we, we were doing some fundraising on that. We put those funds on hold for the moment until uh, we could see that the project is going to be viable going forward. But we set up an emergency fund for the people in the village now. Um, our understanding is that those council has set up kind of a priority of families that, that uh, can be helped if uh, we're able to get some emergency funds over to them. So we're in the process of doing that now. And in terms of the uh, challenges, so what sort of challenges does the Friends of Adi Fokin face in his work? And do you think there's, um, or do you feel there's any positive um, opportunities for any positive change on the horizon? Well, uh, we've been working with our congressional reps. I think I sent some information to your uh, production team about uh, 12 members of Congress that uh, weighed in on the situation of Wadi Fakin, the property of militians, the land confiscations, and they wrote a letter to the State Department um, in July of this past year um, addressing that and calling for an immediate halt to those uh, taking place. Um, we're trying to expand that. Those were members of the of the House, and we're trying to expand that to include senators, and we're doing that outreach as we speak to reach some of those offices and see if they can weigh on the situation. We're very worried that, of course, with the attention of Gaza, and of course, it's, it's very important that that's where the focus of people's attention is, that uh, Wadi Fakin and other West Bank areas do not get forgotten, because things can tend to uh, take place while people are not paying attention, and uh, we're very uh, about that uh, not taking place. And so we're hoping these um, uh, congressional uh, persons would uh, come to support the village at the same time that they we're trying to, we're, we're also engaged in, in people calling for a ceasefire in Gaza as well. We hope that uh, that can be a both and in the situation. So it's, a, it's an uphill climb in terms of education and in terms of conscious raising for um, people of all sectors kind of in in uh, um, in the world that we're we're living in, and um, uh, I, I think I believe our hope is that there's more consciousness raised as people begin to understand how horrendous this uh, uh, siege on Gaza has been, and then people can understand that there's been a history behind all of this, and that includes villages like Washington in the West Bank as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Marco Yoshi, thank you so much for joining us and uh, and speaking to us and shedding some light on what what you guys are doing, and uh, you continue to do your humanitarian work as well. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank, thank you very much for the invitation, and it was good to be with you. Thank you, thank you. So that was Marco Yoshi, and uh, some of the work that uh, that they are doing, um, friends of uh, Wadi Fukin, and you know, helping out the Palestinian people, obviously, which is you know that. Wadi Fugin is located in Bethlehem, uh, which is a district of the West Bank as well. And some of the things that they are doing, it's uh, it's quite 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 promising as well. Um, you do have we do have these other charities and other you know people who are working, who are trying their best, and their bit they're playing their role into making sure that there is a ceasefire, making sure that there is some sort of uh, you know accountability for the perpetrators, and also. Trying to help the people, trying to help the the the, the lives 
you know which are which are which are in dire situation right now and it's uh, it like like we like we've been saying since the beginning of its inception since the beginning right it, there has been a conflict they came mm-hmm. in and the conflict started straight from there so it's not just it's not just like you said before it's not just something that has happened now it's something mm-hmm. which has been happening and hopefully we do come across this and uh, the situation does change they were saying that they are um talking about a ceasefire for four days but mm. let's see let's see how let's see if that takes place let's see and hopefully it does take place but hopefully and we pray that you know it sees it's not just for four days but it is actually a complete ceasefire as well that's obviously what we want isn't it um i think there was a talk yeah. for a four hour one as yeah. Well, so. yeah 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 that was a little bit before Yeah, uh, a few weeks ago, isn't it? So they've been talking, but they've just, been talking, but you know, just to to get the aid inside, exactly, so yeah. that they can get aid in. But I mean, since the 11th of October, there's a full electricity blackout in Gaza. That's the thing. I mean, they're saying, yeah, yeah, we're we're providing with different equipment and this and that. But how are they going to use the equipment if electricity is not even there? The power's being cut. The water's not there. I mean, even living in the shelters, a UN spokesperson has literally said the average number of uh, people staying in Gaza shelters is 4,400. Now that's 2.5 times mm. their designated, designated, designated capacity. capacity yeah. And even in terms of water, which you just mentioned, mm. one to three liters per person per day as of 24th of October. It might sound like, oh, one to three liters, but one to three liters for everything you need to do. Yeah, that's literally nothing. I mean, a shower probably takes more. Yeah. So. Yeah, literally. Some people. I mean, we're told to drink two liters of water today, uh, a day, isn't it? Exactly, and and that's just drinking. That's not if you actually think about how much water you use in a day. Hundred percent. Literally, it's not. You can't compare. To yeah, that. We're talking about hospitals as well, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, five thousand um, uh, patients that they are seeing and the capacity on a normal day, on normal times, right? They can only do seven hundred. And also I mean, even even healthcare facilities, eighty two yeah. attacks. Yeah, that's what it is. I mean, that's what the situation is. And hopefully, I mean, one of the things that we can do, and His Holiness, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, has been Zamrasul Ahmad may Allah be his helper. He has been saying, he has been telling us that what one thing that we can do us as Ahmadiyya Muslims is pray, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Because we believe that prayer is so powerful that it can, you know, it it can do wonders. It can do wonders. it can make the impossible possible as well if not anything else at least one prostration in a prayer we can do that and that will make a difference as well he has even said that if every single ahmadi muslim around the world if they literally pray properly and literally bow down and pray for 3 days straight the whole world could be a different place but you know it's it's up to us if you want to uh, pay heed to these uh, to these words or not but his holiness has been giving us guidance since the beginning mm. right he's been talking about conflicts which are which are which are happening which were happening ever since the beginning ever since the beginning of his caliphate also his holiness has been pleading to the muslims the muslim leaders that the nations to literally come together one of the main things why these people or these zionists are becoming so powerful is because they I mean believe it or not they one of their agendas is to be anti-islamic right and to be islamophobic and to promote hatred in terms of islam that is one of their main agendas and they they're becoming successful because the muslims are 
divided. They're, they're literally not united. If they were united, if they came together as one force, as one nation, then the you know, the whole world would be a different place. And that is one thing that you know we can we can understand that if all these different nations came together and they had one voice, that would be so much more powerful. Um, and obviously, if those nations were brave, if the leaders of those nations were brave enough to call injustice where there is injustice, right? If you're a leader and you and you're you're too scared to even say to anyone who's who's, who's a bully that you know what you're doing is wrong, then you know what kind of what kind of leader are you? What kind of message are you giving? A lot of these nations they say and they 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 say that we are the champions of democracy. We are the people's party. We listen to the people, and whatever the people want, that is what we do. We we deliver. But how 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 is that the case when the people of a nation, hundreds and thousands of people here in the UK, in London, they're marching, they're 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 going out for the pro- protests on a weekly basis, hundreds and thousands, near millions actually, and they want a ceasefire. But the but you know look at the MPs, not even half of them voted for the ceasefire. 293 voted against it I mean what kind of picture does that paint isn't it now hopefully this is why it's important for us to reach out to our MPs as well isn't it a lot of people say oh no what's the what's the letter going to do with this and that but we need to do our bit isn't it of course. we need to do our bit um, His Holiness the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community as a Muslim Ahmad may Allah be his helper has spoken like I mentioned has spoken about this on various different occasions and on one particular occasion where he spoke about global conflicts, um, he spoke about that, uh, the challenges, and also, of course, what the solution is in regards to that. Let's listen to what His Holiness had to say. Fundamental to Islamic teachings is that Muslims must live peacefully with all other members of society and never cause them any harm or distress. Despite this, Many people associate Islam with violence and warfare, even though nothing could be further from the truth. No matter what terrorists may claim, under no circumstances are indiscriminate attacks or killing ever justified. Islam has enshrined the sanctity of human life in chapter 5, verse 33 of the Holy Quran, which states, Whosoever killed a person, it shall be as if he killed all mankind. And whoso gave, and whoso gave life to one, it, should be, uh, it shall be as if he had given life to all mankind. What a clear and categorical statement this is. Often people very query why there were wars in early Islam. Similarly, they ask why terrorism is being perpetrated in Islam's name. In order to answer this question, I always cite two verses of chapter 22 of the Holy Quran, where permission for a defensive war was first given to the early Muslims. In chapter 22, verse 40, Allah the Almighty states, Permission to fight is given to those against whom war is made, because they have been wronged. 
and Allah indeed has the power to help them. In the subsequent verse, the Quran outlines the reasons for which the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, was granted permission to engage in warfare. Chapter 22 verse 41 states, those who have been driven out of their homes unjustly only because they said, our Lord is Allah. And if Allah did not repel some men by means of others, there would surely have been pulled down cloisters and churches and synagogues and mosques where the name of Allah is oft commemorated. And Allah will surely help one who helps him. Allah is indeed powerful, mighty. What do these verses prove? Certainly, they do not give Muslims the license to inflict cruelties or to seek the blood of others. Instead, they establish the duty of Muslims to protect other religions and to guarantee the right of all people to believe in whatever they desire, free from any form of compulsion or duress. Hence, Islam is that religion which has forever enshrined the universal principle of freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, and freedom of belief. Therefore, if today there are so-called Muslim groups or sects that are killing people, it can only be condemned in the strongest possible terms. Their barbaric acts are a complete violation of everything that Islam stands for. Let it be clear that such people have no knowledge of the faith they claim to follow. For example, Mr. Seven Mary, a lawyer representing one of the terrorists involved in the Brussels and Paris terrorist attacks, recently gave an interview to a French newspaper in which he described his client as having no real knowledge of Islam. Indeed, when asked if he had ever read the Quran, his client readily admitted that he had not and had merely read an interpretation online. Furthermore, a research paper published by the Royal Institute for International Relations in March 2016 also concluded that the terrorists who identified themselves as Muslims had little or no knowledge of its teachings. Regarding the profile of young Muslims who have been radicalized and perpetrated attacks in the West, they, the report states, their acquaintance with religion thought is undoubtedly, undoubtedly more shallow and superficial than their predecessors, as is their acquaintance with international politics. Further says, injustice was often a starting point with their predecessors, journey towards extremism and terrorism. This has now largely been overshadowed by personal estrangement and motives 
as the primary engines of their journey. Furthermore, in an essay cited in the Washington Post, the Belgian counterterrorism official Ellen Grignard said, their revolt from society manifested itself through petty crime and delinquency. Many are, many are essentially part of street gangs. What the Islamic State brought in its wake was a new strain of Islam which legitimized their radical approach. Thus, non-Muslim experts accept that the terrorism, uh, that the terrorists have established a new strain of Islam that can only be described as a reprehensible distortion of Islamic teachings. Those who have adopted this new strain and are mercilessly killing, maiming, and raping innocent people are, according to the Quran, guilty of murdering all of humanity. On the other side, it is also apparent that amongst non-Muslims, there are certain individuals or groups who are fanning the flames of division and hostility and have made it their mission to unjustly defame and discredit the teachings of Islam. For example, in a column published just last week in Foreign Policy, the journalist Bethany Allen has written about a well-funded well and sophisticated US-based network whose only purpose is to incite Islamophobia and to stop all attempts to promote the peaceful teachings of Islam. The foreign policy article states, a well-funded network is trying to strip the right to speak away from American Muslims and fanning the politics of fear. America's far-right anti-Muslim ecosystem has adopted the same twisted interpretation interpretations of Islam that the Islamic State ISIS promotes. The author further writes that peaceful Muslims in the United States are the victims of an increasingly empowered industry of Islamophobia that constricts the space for balanced and open dialogue, sidelining the very Muslims who are doing the most to promote peaceful orthodox interpretations of Islam. She writes, the United States has powerful protections for speech and religious liberty, but a targeted network now seeks to deny Muslims that freedom and to treat Islam as a dangerous political ideology rather than a religion, and to silence and discredit any Muslims who disagree. The article gives the example <coughs> of a peaceful Muslim convert in the United States. As soon as he gave a university lecture highlighting Islam's true teachings, a powerful lobby turned against him, trying to portray him as an apologist for murder, slavery, and rape. His family were subjected to death and rape threats. The university where he worked was inundated 
with emails demanding that he was immediately fired. Thus, such cases prove that there is a concerted effort taking place to influence public opinion against Islam and to prevent its true teachings from reaching a wide audience. Based on her research, the author concludes by saying, in the process, they are denying Islam the same functional rights that Christianity enjoy, uh, enjoys and silencing the very people best poised to reconcile Islam with modern American life, which may be the very point. Regrettably, we often hear politicians and leaders making needlessly inflammatory statements that are beholden <clears throat> not to the truth, but to their own political interests. For example, in a speech last year, when running for president, Dr. Ben Carson, who is now a cabinet member in the new US administration, described Islam not as a religion, but as a life organization system. Furthermore, speaking about the founder of Islam, peace be upon him, Dr. Carson said, what I would suggest is that everybody, everybody here take a few hours and read up on Islam. Read about Muhammad, peace be on him. Read about how he got his start in Mecca. Read about how he was seen by the people in Mecca, not very favorably. Further, he says, he has, how his uncle was influential and protected him. When his uncle died, he had to flee. He went north to Medina. That's where he put together his armies and they began to massacre anybody who didn't believe the same way they did. I agree with Dr. Carson. Only to the extent that I too suggest that people take the time to read the true teaching, uh, the true character of the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him. If they study impartial texts, they will see for themselves that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was never involved in the massacre of non-Muslims and that such claims are a complete affront to history. The truth is that as a consequence of many years of sustained and bitter persecution, he and his followers were driven out of his hometown of Mecca and forced to migrate to Medina, where they lived peacefully alongside the local Jewish people and other tribes. However, the disbelievers of Mecca did not let the Muslims live in peace and instead aggressively pursued them to Medina and waged war, seeking to destroy Islam once and for all. It was at that critical juncture in Islam's history that Allah, the Almighty, permitted the Muslims to engage in a defensive war. This permission was granted as the verse of the Quran cited earlier attest. In order to establish the universal principle of freedom of belief. Hence, the allegation that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was a belligerent leader or a warmonger is an injustice and 
cruelty of the very highest order and such false claims can only grieve the hearts of the millions of peaceful Muslims worldwide. So that was uh, an audio clip of uh, one of the speeches of His Holiness, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fifth caliph of the promised Messiah, upon whom be peace, Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmad, may Allah be his helper. And like, like, like we've been saying, he has been talking about this, the, the problems, um, the divisions, and also the solution for that, of course, during the scope of Islam, during, uh, you know, during the course of his caliphate as well. And with his words of wisdom, uh, we are coming towards the end of, uh, of, uh, of this part of the show. But before we do that, His Holiness uh, once said in another place that rather than seeking conflict or fostering hatred, Islam has only ever instructed Muslims to knock down the walls of hatred that divide mankind and to build bridges of love and compassion in order to unite it. In short, at every level of society and across all communities and peoples, Muslims have a duty to spread peace. And this is what our motto is as well, isn't it? Love for all, hatred for none. That is the motto of our community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And we are preaching, we are trying to preach the the you know the, the, the teachings of Islam to the wider public so that they understand that Islam is a religion of peace. And with this um with this message, you know, hopefully we can win the hearts of, of people. We don't want to win territories, we want to win the hearts. And we will do that with love so that people can understand and realize their creator, Allah the Almighty. And then of course once they do that then they can fulfill the rights of mankind. And all of that, all of this has been given to us in the Holy Quran, which is the book for the Muslims, which is given to the Muslims, but of course it's for the whole world. It's for the whole of mankind until the end of time. And that is something that we're going to be talking about in the next hour. And so this actually draws a conclusion to this part of the show. Thank you so much for listening. And of course to our guest who's, who took time out and spoke to us. But join us after the news break as we will go into our second topic which is about the Holy Quran, as I just mentioned. If you want to contact us, 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call, but join us after the news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to the Drive Time Show here on The Voice of Islam Radio. We're talking about the Holy Quran in this part of the show, and in particular... Um, the avenue that we're going to be talking about or the specific topic that we're going to be talking about is miracles of the Holy Quran of course we can even when we talk about miracles we can talk about so many different things mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to miracles when it comes to the, the writing the, the, the way that it was revealed the, the, you know, the, how it was revealed the, the, the different steps and way in which it was revealed the different renderings the different readings of the Holy Quran of course it's a, it's a, it's an ocean which doesn't have which it doesn't have it's an endless ocean what I can say. Um, and by the way, it's a, it's yeah. an ocean that God Almighty has said He will protect. It's an ocean that God Almighty said He will protect. And the word is the same for for more than fourteen hundred years. It's un, it's not yeah. been changed. And even if, God forbid, there was no scripture left, hmm. because we've got people who've memorized it. Yeah. Within days, it could be put back together. Exactly. And which other book? Can that be done for? No other book can... No, no. There's literally no. Even when you talk about holy scriptures, if you talk about the Torah, if you talk about the Injil, the Gospels, 
the the whole Bible, um, any other book, the Sanskrit or whatever, Guru Babaji Nanak Sahib or whatever, any other uh, any other book, Guru Garan Singh or whatever, all of these other books, if they were, you know, obviously, God forbid, if they were all burnt and finished or demolished or whatever, right? If they were, if they ceased to exist, how many of them would actually, you know, actually be brought back? Exactly. There's so None. many different editions. And so many different editions. So many new changes in words. Changes in words. This and that. Exactly, isn't it? Um, but apart from the Holy Quran, there won't be any other book. And this is the beauty of the Holy Quran. As Allah, just like you mentioned, Allah the Almighty says that surely I or we are the ones who revealed this, and we are the ones who will protect this. And this protection of Allah the Almighty is a miracle in itself. That's just <laughs> literally, as I mentioned, there's so many different things that we can actually talk about when it comes to the the Holy Quran. How beautiful it is, the writing, the the way that we read it, the way that uh, it was, you know, the, the the actual context of the Holy Quran, the the miracles which are mentioned in the Holy Quran, the the prophecies in the Holy Quran as well. And uh, that's actually something the Promised Messiah actually um, alludes to as well. Hmm. So the Promised Messiah of the MDM Muslim community, uh, the founder. Uh, for those that are unacquainted, yes, he states the mir- the clear miracle of the Holy Quran is the unlimited insights and fine points which it compromises co- comprise comprises. Sorry, a person who does not admit this miracle of the Holy Quran is altogether deprived of the knowledge of the Quran. He who does not believe in this miracle does not estimate the Quran as highly as it should be estimated, and does not recognize God as he should be recognized. Hmm. And does not honor the holy prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, as he should be honored, and that's in his Allah hmm. So that is just one of the writings, or one of the extracts from from his writings. And today we're going to try to unfold some of the these remarkable insights of the Holy Quran and what it actually offers, and from the intricate working, uh, you know, workings of the cosmos, of the mysteries of the natural world. And the complexities of our environment, the Holy Quran has actually touched on various aspects of our universe in ways that were far ahead of his time. Like I mentioned before, that an, a, a, a man who was, you know, living in a desert, right, and what nothing was, you know, around at that time, and literally producing a masterpiece. How can it be man-made? How literally? How can it be man-made? Who was the one who told him about all of these things? None other by than Allah the Almighty Himself. So obviously, it cannot be man-made, and that is what we're going to be talking about. Of course, if you want to contribute to the show, you can always do so because the lines are open. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call, and we would love to to speak to you and and hear and hear you guys uh, what your opinions are and what different things that uh, you have witnessed. Uh, in terms of the Holy Quran. So let's speak to our first guest for this part of the show, like Bharti, uh, who has studied uh, natural sciences at the University of Cambridge and works with the Ahmed Muslim Research Association as a key speaker as well. Peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show, Laika. Thank you, Zakullah, for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Just from the outset, can you just elaborate on how the verse, and we created you in pairs, aligns with biological concepts? So um, the verse that you've mentioned, um, there's several iterations actually in the Holy Quran. Um, 
And when I was younger and I used to read it, and I think it uh, applies probably to many of us, we used to think, well, I used to think anyway, it applies to um, male and female, so man and woman, and that we have been created in pairs. And because, and as Alan mentions that, God mentions that in different sections of the Quran. It's only when I sort of grew up and I started studying science, um, you, you realize actually that when God talks about creation, um, uh, it's not just the, the, the genders or male and female um, in generally in the nature. Um, it is, it's a far more wider applying concept. So if I take you from, you know, um, from the organism down to the organs, they're created in pairs. You know, you have your, your obvious organs like your lungs, your eyes, your ears, you know, things like your hands and your, you know, legs and things like that. They're all created in pairs. Like Allah says, he's created us in pairs. Hmm. But then there is organs that you would think, well, hang on, no, this has been created. Um, you know, it's not, there is no pair, for example, for the brain. But if you look at the brain, you do, you have a half that's, you know, a left half and a right half, those two lobes. Although we define as one structure, it's it's two distinct halves, hmm. same as your heart. So the biological concepts, then, even if you go further down to cells or cellular structures or down to molecules, you will find that this verse comes true again and again. And it's only struck me in the last few years, um, again, my own personal experience of my discovery of the Quran, um, is when I read two verses, um, it's in, in Surah 51, verse 50, um, God says, and of everything we have created pairs that you may reflect. Um, and another verse is um, uh, chapter 36, um, verse 37, and he says, Holy is he who created all things in pairs. And it only struck me then, and I thought, does that mean that everything that we see in this world has been created to a pair, you know, in pairs? And it really led down a rabbit hole um, for me, um, where mm. I found really all biological concepts will come back to this. Everything has been created in pairs. Absolutely. I mean, just... Uh uh, leading on from that as well, from this co- from this uh, concept and this verse, we have created in pairs. How does it sort of resonate with the principles of genetics and, of course, the whole reproduction uh, and the whole field as well in biology? Yeah. So again, the foundation of creation is really genetics, isn't it? It's mm. our DNA. Um, I'll. I'll break it down for those who might not be very familiar with these terms, but DNA is essentially um, the information that's within ourselves which allows us to be living and essentially it's the code for everything that we are. And we have around 36 trillion cells and each one of them has DNA and each length of DNA is two meters long and that's, you know, the significance of DNA. It's hugely important for us. now that DNA, because it's so big and fast, we, it's sectioned into chromosomes. As humans, we have 46 chromosomes, but that's not how we commonly refer to them. We commonly refer to them as 23 pairs of chromosomes. And you'll see where I'm going with this, because again, it's been created in pairs. Yeah. And the reason why they're paired up is because you get the, the one pair of chromosomes. One half of that is from your mother's genetics. Mm. The yeah. other half is from your father's genetics. So again, it's it's in pairs. And then if you again, if you if you look further into the structure of DNA, so 
as I just mentioned, DNA is this sort of really long, two meter long DNA strand in every cell. So if we, if we do the math, we had 36 trillion cells and we, each one has two meters long worth of DNA. We're talking about 72 uh, trillion meters worth long of DNA within each individual. Mm. That's incomprehensible. Yeah. However, what happens is when you have something like a string, let's imagine you have a two meter long string, you want to, you know, condense it down, you'll, you know, roll it into a ball of some sort of shape or, you know, you'll spool it up. The same thing is done with our DNA. And what we use to spool it down or, you know, shorten it down into a smaller compact version is something called histones. And again, if I break down the maths for you, we have um, each histone molecule is made up of eight histones, but there's only four types of histones. So again, if we do the math, and mm. it is correct, you have two pairs or one pair of each histone that makes your eight molecular bigger histone. So again, you've broken it down, you've come back to the same essence of it's been created in pairs. You look at your DNA strand, if, if any of those who are familiar with the DNA strand and have seen pictures of DNA being depicted, we see the sort of helix, it's called a double helix. Mm. Again, that DNA strand is made up of two strands um, which run alongside each other. Again, it's been created in pairs. Yeah. If you want to go even further down its molecular level, the each molecule, so the DNA strand is made up of four molecules, but you will only get them ever in two pairs of twos. So we shorten them down into the four molecules, we shorten them down to A, T, C, and G. But you will never get, unless it's a mistake, you will never get A with C or G with C. You will always get, sorry, you will get always get A with T and C with G. Hmm. Again, it's been created very distinctly into pairs. You don't get the overlap. And um, that's just DNA and genetics. But again, if you go into reproduction, you'll see the same thing. As you asked with reproduction, um, when we have, you start with one cell, but when it divides, it creates a pair. And that's how you go from that singular cell into an embryo and then a fetus um, that eventually becomes a baby. So again, and the, the basic foundations of creation, um, the DNA and the, the embryology, uh, it, it's all, it all comes back to pairs, really. I mean, it's, it's absolutely amazing, uh, the, the, I mean, the way that uh, it coincides with the with the with the verses of the Holy Quran as well that uh, you know and it goes absolutely hand in hand with what other the Almighty has mentioned. Just talking about, I know you've mentioned this in quite some detail as well. Is there any other specific examples or phenomena in uh, in biology that you find particularly compelling in, in connection to this verse? Yeah, so I think, um, like you say, the the phenomena I've mentioned, I find them personally very interesting hmm. because. Um, Every single aspect, even the aspects I haven't mentioned, will go back and it, you will find pairs. But for me, what is more profound isn't individual phenomena. It's the fact that in all of the fields of biology, you will find it. You, there, for me, at the moment, I have not seen and I will not. That's my conviction. I will not find a lack of pairs. You will always find pairs. Mm. And I think that's what's compelling for me with the Quran, that when God says he has created everything in pairs, it really is everything and nothing can be refuted. And for me, what is uh, more, more striking now is it's, it's, a, it's a prophecy, it's a, it's, a, it's a miracle of the Quran that will continue forever because while we know so much in biology, 
when we compare it to what we don't know, it's mm-hmm. like a drop in the ocean. Yeah, so what that tells me for the for the people who will study science and who will compare it with the Quran, in the future, they will find this prophecy to come true again and again and again. And that really, you know, uh, for me personally, it's something that really inspires me. And really, I mean, when I do get bored, I will go and look, you know, for more pairs because mm-hmm. it's something I can come back and it will be there. Mm-hmm. And how has your background in physical sciences enhanced your understanding and interpretation of religious texts? I know you have touched upon it before, but if you just gave mm-hmm. some more insight. So I often, when people ask me about this, I tell them that, you know, I... When I started studying science, so when I took a real interest in science, it was purely because I wanted to find, I wanted to find God in science. Um, and now it's, it's all reversed. I want to find science within God, you know. And so now when I read the Quran and I look at these verses, really, if there's any insinuation of any link to science or biology or any of these phenomena, I will really ponder them and, you know, really, you know, they really get stuck with me and I think about them. But the beauty of the Quran is that what I can find or what I can't find will not be the same for anyone else. You know, um, Allah Ta'ala has said, you know, ponder again and again. God says, you know, ponder again and again because the the miracles of the, the Quran are so vast that you just, you can't stop. The moment you stop, the miracles stop. But until then, you can, you will find them, you know, so... um. It's changed in the sense that I look for them a bit more and it solidifies, you know, the, the truth of the Qur'an in my head and in my heart, really. And so how do you navigate the sort of, you know, talking about, I think you, I think you want to mention like the balance, isn't it? The balance uh, oh. between faith and science mm, yeah, and uh, how, how that sort of, you know, when you inquire about it from an uh, from, from, from explorer's perspective. Mm. So I think, um, again... When many of us think about science, or when some of us think of science um, and religion, hmm. it's often touted as something that is not compatible. Um, again, this is not surprising, but um, so the, the most atheistic um, of sciences is biology. And that's because of the sort of medieval thinking of, you know, that the, the earth was created in seven days, or that, you know, evolution is not supported hmm. by religion. I'm very fortunate to be part of the, the Ahmadi Muslim community because we've been taught um, that that's not true, that science has been supported in Quran for evolution, for example. You know, we, we've been given evidence and proof that it's in the Quran. You know, you can go and read it. And um, so I'm very fortunate that there is no conflict for me between my religion and my science. In fact, they're so harmonious. They work, you know, um, together. So really, um, they boost each other up. If I find something in science that fascinates me, you know, it inspires all. It's, it's it's the creation of God, and I can go back in the ground, and I'll find something that links it back to that, you know, um, theory. Equally, again, the Quran drives me to find, you know, God in that in 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 science and in His creation. So the navigation is quite easy for me. I think we're very fortunate that we have that sort of religious background that tells us that these things are harmonious and you will find the truth in both of them. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Laga Bhatti, and uh, speaking to us and you know, telling us the intricacies about uh, about this particular verse and how it coincides with biology and different things that you mentioned as well. Absolutely amazing. Thank you so much mm-hmm. once again. You're most welcome. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.
let's um before we actually get into some other you know miracles that we wanted to that we want to talk about uh, today let's speak to let's speak to our next guest who's on the line with us Omar Nasser uh, who is a psychiatrist and part of the national tabligh department which is the outreach department of the Ahmadi Muslim community and he works with the platform rational religion which argues for the existence of God almighty and the need for islam as well assalamu alaikum peace be upon you welcome to the show Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for, for joining us this afternoon. Now, s- some some people argue that the vastness of the universe, as described in the in the Holy Quran, could imply the existence of other civilizations as well. How, how do you sort of interpret the Quranic verses in light of the growing scientific exploration explorations of exoplanets and the search for extraterrestrial life? Well, um... You know, this question of whether there are aliens is something which the Quran does speak on quite explicitly. It first addresses this in a very general sense mm. in the um, well, the second verse of the Holy Quran, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, that God is the Lord of all the worlds, and that means all the realms, but also all the worlds. And that indicates that he, um, you know, that there is a multiplicity of realms and a multiplicity of, of worlds, which implies at least that there may well be life in other planets or in other um, you know, parts of the universe. But this is made actually much more explicit in a few other verses. So firstly, there's um, there's a verse which I'm just locating it now. It's in chapter mm. 42, verse 30, where God says, And among his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth, and of whatever living creatures he has spread forth in both. So both the heaven and the earth, the heavens mm. and the earth. And he has the power to gather them together wherever he ple- whenever he pleases. So God is here explicitly saying that there is life on other planets because he's saying that he has spread Daraba, which means kind of living terrestrial creatures, so not angelic or anything, hmm. on um, uh, the throughout the heavens as well. Uh, and this this finds oh and, and and also this verse tells us that we will come into contact with this um, with such beings. And that, you know, God says that he has the power to gather us together whenever he pleases. And he says this is his, uh, one of his signs, which indicates that it will actually be witnessed by us. Now, um, the Quran also talks about this in other verses. Uh, it says in chapter 65 that Allah is he who created seven heavens and the earth the like thereof. And this gives us some insight, I think, into the search for exoplanets, which is that you have to find earth-like planets. You know, um, it's it's reasonably likely, we don't know this for certain, but it's reasonably likely that there aren't too many combinations of planetary conditions which will support life. And the fact that the Quran talks about Earths being spread throughout the heavens indicates that um, they will be quite similar to ours. So I guess in the search for exoplanets, we should be looking for similar conditions, which is exactly what they are doing. But I understand it's not a particularly easy thing to do. Um, so the Quran has, you know, you know, the other religions are completely silent on this. The secular world doesn't know what to think. The Muslims should be heartened by this and continue the search for extraterrestrial life. And, you know, these verses I've said, there are actually others. Uh, mm-hmm. We have a, a, an article on our website called First Contact, which goes through all of them. Mm-hmm. But uh, hopefully that's sufficient to show that the Quran does indeed support the idea of alien life and also supports the idea that we'll have some form of communication with them in the future. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And also, how do you navigate the tension between interpreting Quranic verses in a manner that aligns with scientific knowledge and the risk of uh, retrofitting novel scientific ideas onto ancient texts? 
Well, I mean, at the end of the day, language is language. And if a meaning is inherent in the language used, then you constantly accuse it of being retrofitting. Because this is what people do. You know, the, the verse very famously in the Quran about the Big Bang, um, or some form of Big Bang cosmology, people say, well, why didn't Muslims come up with this first? Or why didn't they discover the Big Bang? Um, and firstly, you know, it's worth saying that the Promessiah, the founder of the Ahli Muslim community, actually said on the basis of that verse that the universe did come from a small uh, sack or a small, uh, a much smaller uh, volume. So he did say that. But, you know, scientific, belief, scientific discovery is something that requires huge amounts of um, work in the scientific world. Right. So, you know, a, a, thir- a 12th, 13th century, um, or even before that, Muslim scientists, they did lay the groundworks ultimately for Big Bang cosmology through all their advancements in astronomy and cosmology. But, you know, you can't suddenly magic everything up. But the, the, the discovery itself is inherent in the word. So if the words bear that meaning, and they are specific meanings, then there, what is the problem with understanding now in the light of the scientific discovery that this is what the Quran was talking about? Because your eyes have been opened. In fact, God has opened your eyes that this is what this verse referred to. When you read a verse and you don't have the scientific understanding yet, it's very difficult to conceive fully in your imagination how it will be fulfilled, because all of us are bound by our mental models of the world. And our mental models are informed by how we are educated. So if you're, edu- if you're, if you're educated to understand the Big Bang, it's very easy to see that, um, that you know, that's possibly how the world came to be. In fact, you're told it is so. Without that, it becomes harder. However, the Quranic verse is, is very clear, where it talks about the heavens and the earth were a closed up mass, and then they were rent asunder. And then it says, and from water we made every living thing. So the verse is very clear that the, everything you see around you, the heavens and the earth, were a single closed up mass, and it has the connotation of darkness. And therefrom, it was um, expanded outwards, or it was, it was opened outwards. So it's not like it's a reach, you know, and that's what we find with so many of these verses. It's not a reach. Secondly, I mean, I would say that there are many things in the Quran which, um, you know, are predictive. So the the embryology and how it talks about embryology has been found to be completely correct. Um, we in rational religion have found that the Quran's discussion of mountains is something which only very recently was uh, vindicated with the with the discovery of sea mounts and how sea mounts reduce seismic activity. So uh, you know you, ca- you you the the critic doesn't really have a leg to stand on here because they can't at once say well you can't use any scientific discoveries which have already been discovered to vindicate the Quran but also if you make a prediction on the future based on the Quran they'll say nah it's not going to happen like that well so what's left what what level of evidence will you accept you know an honest an honest person simply has to look at the verse have to look at the scientific discovery and say do these correlate in a way which indicates divine authorship could only God have known this rather than the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him himself without divine intervention and if the answer is yes, then you have to accept that there is a divine author of the Holy Quran. And this is something on our website we have uh, a, a rational religion that you can have a lot of work on. And in instances where there are apparent contradictions between scientific consensus and Quranic verses, how do you um, approach reconciling these differences within the framework of Islamic theology? Um, well, you have to be humble, both in your scientific approach and your Quranic interpretation. Mm. If there is a glaring uh, difference, which to be honest, I've very rarely to never seen, um, then you have to be open that actually the Quran may yet be vindicated in the scientific way. 
if there are other interpretations that are available, then one should also have a look at whether those work as well, because the Quran, the words of the Quran don't have infinite meanings, but they have, in the sense of you know one phrase cannot be interpreted in contradictory ways, but they um, often have more than one meaning. So if you're not sure about a particular physical interpretation, then is there another way it could be understood, i.e. spiritual interpretation? However, my experience has been is that actually the physical interpretation always comes true literally as well. Uh, this is something we discovered in our, in our work with seamounts, as I, as I mentioned. This was an issue for Muslims. They had been wondering how is it possible that mountains can reduce seismic activities. And upon an analysis of the, how the Quran uses the words and uh, an analysis of recent discoveries, it actually showed that the Quran was correct and what was being taken as metaphorical as a, or as a secondary meaning actually turned out to be completely true. So I would exhort Muslims to have faith in the uh, physical uh, manifestations of these verses as well. Absolutely. And to use them as a basis for research. Absolutely, absolutely. Just coming towards uh, different things which are mentioned in the Holy Quran as well, uh, talking about the concept of adaptation and uh, diversity amongst living beings, that's also quite evident, uh, uh, you know, what the Holy Quran says as well. But how might this relate to the broader concept of natural selection in evolutionary biology? Now, talking about is this, because a lot of people say that, you know, blind, uh, blind selection, is this just blind selection as it's you know, commonly perceived? What are some of the, you know, the, the, Holy, the verses of the Holy Quran which actually talk, address this issue? Well, the Holy Quran talks about this again in, uh, in that second verse of the Quran, Rabbul Alameen. Rabb means the creator, the developer, and the sustainer. So God is the creator, the developer, or the evolver of every realm. So this is in, supported in principle in the Holy Quran. Um, in another chapter, actually several other chapters, this is made more explicit in the chapter of, uh, of Noah. God says that uh, we have created man in stages. Do they not see, or rather it says that they have created man in stages. It says um, that we have been grown from the earth like the growing of vegetation. So these are very explicit mentions that we, our man has not been created all at once. He's been created through a gradual process. And it likens the evolution of man as a seed being put in the earth and then growing into something much mightier. So uh, this is one of many explicit references to evolution uh, in the Holy Quran. Elsewhere, if we speak about whether selective processes are blind or whether they are guided by God, God says in the Holy Quran that Allah is he who creates and selects. It is not for them to select. Holy is he above that which they associate with him. Um, so he indicates that both the creative process, be that mutations or whatever else, the creative process of the genetic and cellular development as well as the selective process, i.e. the shaping of the environment around organisms, is something which is also controlled by God. And these, you know, the four khalif of the Athemus community, he likened them to the two hands of God in the sense of that the creation and selection are happening harmoniously side by side in order to come up with us. And we are exceptional beings. We have minds with language. We have so many capacities. And if one is working purely on a natural selective basis, it's very confusing why evolution very preceded past bacteria, because bacteria are highly reproductively successful. They colonize the entire world. Um, as you actually grow, grow up the ladder of consciousness, mm. you're actually reducing your reproducibility and reducing your speed of reproduction and uh, in your overall fitness when seen from a purely reproductive perspective. Fitness is always relative. 
Um, so it's very confusing as to why we ever got to where we are now. It's a, it's a big problem, obviously, for evolutionary scientists who work under a secular framework. And the obvious interpretation is that there is a guiding hand behind this. And this is what Alfred Russell Wallace, the co-founder of um, modern evolution, along with Darwin, ended up saying. He was initially thought that these processes were happening blindly. And by the end of his life, um, as, for instance, collected in his book, The World of Life, and other books that he had, uh, he believed fully that there was um, complete direction and complete control by God in the evolutionary process. So this Wallacean evolution is is what Islam teaches, and uh, or rather accords with. And our our recent article on rationalreligion.co.uk about evolution, it's on the front page still, um, goes into this in extreme detail. If anyone wants to read that, I mean, we encourage our, all of our all of our listeners to actually go onto the website, uh, which is what is it www.rationalreligion.co.uk UK, yeah. so we uh, encourage everyone to go on there and read these articles go through these articles as well but thank you so much Omar Nasser for joining us and speaking to us thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it it's been great thank you so much so getting uh, you know getting his insight and of course our previous guest who we spoke to like Abharti also speaking speaking to her and getting the insight in regards to this as well, which is very very eloquently they very very eloquently put together and told us the teachings of the teachings of the Holy Quran, how they actually coincide um, with, or they go hand in hand with the with science, whether it's biology, whether it's the cosmos, whether it's you know outer space, extraterrestrial life, whether it's uh, you know the the concept of natural selection and blind selection and blind evolution or whatever you may want to call it, or whichever aspect and field you want to go into, the Holy Quran has actually laid down the principles. And given us detailed, you know, and detailed uh, analysis in regards to this as well. So, it's very, very important that we understand what the Holy Quran is saying, what the Holy Quran is trying to tell us. And obviously, if you know, if we are interested in the in the you know in any of these fields, go into them and do more research. And whatever the Holy Quran has mentioned, if some things have not come true yet, or we don't think, or we haven't got the 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 equipment to actually assess that you know this prophecy or this you know the, this verse of the Holy Quran has actually come true, it might come true with 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 your research as well. But obviously, if there is anything that you would like to tell us, maybe you've come up with something. Maybe you want to tell us, uh, you know, something that you found fascinating or interesting. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. Talking about the universe, um, and you know, we, obviously we, talk, we touched upon this with uh, Umar Nasser as well. But uh, in, just in regards to this, the Holy Quran challenges the skeptics with the verse: "Do not the disbelievers see that the heavens and the earth were a closed-up mass? Then we opened them out." This is in the Holy Quran, chapter twenty-one, verse thirty-one. And this verse very intriguingly describes. The universe originating from a singular dense point, a concept remarkably similar to the Big Bang theory in modern cosmology, suggesting an initial state of singularity that later expanded. And this is what you know. Omanus also said that a lot of people say that you know, if the if the Muslims already had this teaching, the concept of the Big Bang theory, why weren't they the ones who came up with this? But the thing is, is that. Obviously, there needs to be funding into this. Then, obviously, you need a lot of money to to actually go through the research, to actually do the research, to to even have instruments to actually measure different things as well. Um, 
obviously we know we don't have that but the people who do have that the scientists that do have that they are the ones who are doing the research for us in a way because they're proving with their research they are proving that the teachings of the holy quran are absolutely crystal clear and the, the teachings of the holy quran are the actual teachings because just, it's the word of god of course and just one thing i i think um, needs to be borne in mind as well hmm. is that the quran is a teaching for all of times so absolutely. more meanings will come out with time as god you know enable us to learn more and and progress in our other fields and what not we'll be able to find more and that's the beauty of the quran that it's for all ages now and for for all people hmm. and so there might be a thing where you might think oh wait why didn't we know this about this before or now we're finding out about this in science but why is it that now we're raising the hmm. well actually it was there before but with the other sort of progress that we've made we've been able to exactly this, yeah. we've been able to correlate that and exactly. just further enhance the the beauty of the Quran and what, what another thing which uh, which our previous guest spoke about as well when I said that obviously the you know your concept of the world is how you perceive the world isn't it the when the holy quran was revealed 1400 years ago to the holy prophet muhammad peace and blessings of allah be upon him and obviously when he received those uh, those verses of the holy quran he told them to the companions now there are different pro- prophecies in that which you know which came which was which were fulfilled during his lifetime some of those prophecies were fulfilled after his lifetime some of those prophecies were fulfilled you know thousands of years later Now this particular verse of the Holy Quran that a 10 month pregnant camel right will be abandoned the arabs in those days they couldn't even imagine about this they you probably couldn't even think about you know how this would happen mm-hmm. because to them the only mode of transport was camels obviously yes there were horses as well and donkeys as well in some other places yes that's true but the main because they were living in a desert because they were living in arabia the main mode of transport the best mode of transport was camels now if somebody told so, uh, you know someone in those days that you know a 10 month she camel who's pregnant right pregnant for mm-hmm. 10 months she's going to get abandoned no one's even going to look at her the arabs will think you know will people are people going to go mad but the mm-hmm. thing is is that that was a prophecy for the latter days and what that actually meant or one of the interpretations of that verse of that prophecy is that camels will become abandoned no one would even use camels because there will be another mode of transport so for example and, trains for example, cars trains, exactly uh, anything anything which has uh, which has an engine and that is you know so it's it's very interesting that the way that you perceive the world obviously when it was the islamic renaissance you can say and when muslim scholars scientists mathematicians mm. physicians doctors all of these people they were you know it was a it was a boom at that time but obviously the technologies that they had and the technology that we have in the 21st century is you know is, is a big difference right is a different world but whatever they had according to their capacities and whatever they had their discoveries were on top of the world i mean they were the leaders of the world but now because we're living in the 21st century you know where technology is progressing at a you know at a speed that we can't even fathom hmm. with obviously different things such as ai coming along and all these different things but the things that we are we can perceive in in this day and age what wasn't even we weren't able to do that hundreds of years ago 
centuries ago. So obviously another century or two centuries from today, you know, that would be a completely different world as well. Of course. And I think that's one of the things, um, you know, people would ask, um, for example, why have the uh, bounties of, of heaven been described as, I don't know, tasting like grapes, for example. And the thing yeah. is, for the Quran and for uh, for it to be understood at the time, you know, if uh, then people need something to compare to. Hmm. So, um, if I was to say to you that you know, um, th- this is he- uh, heaven is going to have this, 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 or for example, in e- easier terms, if I said to you, the person that's going to come is going to be this, 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 I- and exactly those were the names and everything. One, someone could come and claim that you know I have these things that fulfill mm-hmm. these things, but also right, yeah. people wouldn't know. Whereas if you give char- characteristics or something people can relate to, hmm. they'd understand. And I think that's another beauty of the Quran, that it, where it's given examples, where it's given explanations, it's used um, similarity to things people that could, things that people could relate to and that were thought of as good and, and um, sort of they could compare to it and understand better. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, let's speak to our next, with this thought, let's speak to our next guest who's on the line with us, Mahida Raja, who's a PhD candidate at King's College London, currently carrying out research in different stem cell states um, and a particular interest in bioinformatics. Um, thank you so much. Uh, peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, talking about specifically the the creation of man we've spoken a little bit about this uh, with our previous guests as well but in a different in a different way now stem cells have the potential to differentiate into various types of um, various types of cells now how does this process actually relate to the diversity and the specialization which is a, which has been mentioned in the in the holy quran about the creation of man it's important to remember that I think it's um, Surah 39, verse 7. And, you know, in that, Allah states that he created you from a single cell and then from a pair of mated cells and then shaped you in various forms. So the idea here is, as again, you guys are talking about. Hmm. I think the line has just uh, just uh, gone down. Maybe we'll try to oh, we'll get our technician to try and reconnect with, uh, with Mahida Raja uh, there as well. I think the line just dropped. Uh, we'll try to co- contact with her again, but it is interesting, isn't it? Because when we t- when we spoke about the 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 concept of the creation of man, mm-hmm. talking about you know how how Allah the Almighty create created the whole system of of the world, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's as if it's as if he has laid down all of these different um, theories. Uh, I mean, he has told us all of these different ways in which Allah the Almighty created. First of all, the you know the Big Bang theory, how the whole universe came to existence, and then living organisms uh, came into existence, and then of course when you know human beings came coming into existence as well, and how Allah the Almighty mentions that we have created you in pairs. And our previous guests, um, our first guest for this part of the show, spoke about that very eloquently. As well, let's try to. I'm told that we have reconnected with Mahida. Assalamualaikum. Can you hear us again? Assalamualaikum. Sorry about that. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, uh, I don't know what happened, but uh, it's good to have you back. Um, so you heard the question, isn't it? So yeah, yes. we talk about stem cells and basically diversity and how that links in with the Quran. And you know, a lot of clearly states in the Quran that he created you from a single cell, so there was one cell, and then he mated those cells, and then he shaped them into various forms, and 
talking, going off from what you guys were mentioning, talking about earlier, it's difficult, you know, 1400 years ago to, you know, even give definitions to these terms. Hmm. That's why they had to be simplified down, you know, it's for all time. And this is in our definitions now, this is what, you know, diversity and specialization and differentiation is. And if you go back to stem cells, stem cells are the undifferentiated cells. And, you know, they, they have the ability to become any other stem, uh, any other cell. Mm. And, you know, it's, again, it's not fathomable 1400 years ago to have this understanding. But now as we learn more about science, we're uncovering that this is what the Quran actually meant. And this is actually what science is. And again, you know, constantly, even scientific theories continue to change. So even things like our brain, people thought our brain, once it's developed, that's it. There's no plasticity. But, you know, again, they change over time. Now we know that there is neuroplasticity. You know, you don't have to be stem cells. You can be any kind of stem, um, you know, your brain can be any neuronal cells and they will also adapt and change. And uh, bioinformatics um, involves the analysis of biological data on a large scale. How does this field contribute to our understanding of the intricate process being described uh, in the Quran uh, in relation to the creation of man? Again, so um, bioinformatics is cool in the way that it can work more than any human can work. So we have we have immense brain power but you know one people one person working together cannot gather as much data as thousands of people working together and then if thousands of people have the power of thousands of computers you know we have this huge biological data sets that we can analyze and again all of these biological data sets that we analyze they're to decipher um, this concept of the fact that you know it's not just one big picture. There are so many small things going on and how those cannot happen by random. You know, there has to be some sort of design there. There has to be a pattern there. And that's basically what bioinformatics is doing to help us elucidate the fact that, you know, there is a bigger, in my opinion at least, that there is a higher power, there is Allah who has created and designed these things. And he's also seen them in the Quran, essentially, as best as who could understand them 1400 years ago or even as best as people in layman's term can understand them now. Mm-hmm, definitely. And the Quran emphasizes precision and order in creation. So how does your work in bioinformatics reflect or contribute to our understanding of the precision mentioned in the Quranic verses related to embryology? Yeah. So again, I think there's a verse in the Quran which literally says we have created everything with measure. And with bioinformatics, literally all of our algorithms all of you know our data is analyzed literally by looking at the specific orders and you know understanding that even if we change you know milliliters not even milliliters like micromilliliters of you know hormones or i don't know the environment around it can have a huge impact on anything it kind of goes back to even the big bang theory which you were talking about earlier um you know they say that if the big bang was seconds afterwards it would have created a completely different world that we live in you know where the earth might not have even create been been so it's examples like this which show that and it's bioinformatics it's data analysis like this which show that this is in fact the case again it's not one person doing it it's thousands of computers doing it and so they're developing this you know sophisticated computational algorithms and analyzing huge data sets and it's our work to then understand what the patterns are. And those patterns often show very precise to the microliter um, 
changes having a huge impact on how you look as a whole. You know, they really, um, you know, we encourage young mothers to take folic acid, for example. Mm-hmm. Technically, very small tablet with barely anything, you know, barely any folic acid in it. But if you do not take that, your child or the potential child um, has, you know, issues. It could have issues with spina, spina bifida, which is basically their whole backbone not developing. So it's, you know, tiny amounts of position mm-hmm. that we did not even, we could not even conceive. But now they are coming to light because of bioinformatics. Mm. And in your opinion, how might in advancements in stem cell research and bioinformatics further enhance our comprehension of the chronic descriptions of human creation? No, I think we just we we cannot understand the depth of the Quran at the moment. Even now, you know, we have so many tafsir and everything. And Alhamdulillah, we've been guided by the Muhammad Messiah and Salafat. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, we have a lot of more commentaries on this and you know and as we learn more we will learn more as well and again as you mentioned if we if we don't for example if we just had our eyes and we didn't have a telescope we wouldn't know what the inside of a cell looked like and it's the same thing you know even um, our community leader mentions this all the time that we need to have the same spiritual exercises to improve our spirituality as we do for all of our physical health and just our knowledge and um information like that. So I think it's the same thing is like as more we discover and the more scientific theories that come to light, then the more we will understand that this is what the Quran meant. It's where we can start making the links better. But it's again, it requires, you know, a lot of research. It requires a lot of money. And it's something that people don't actually tend to focus on. So, you know, a science is still very secular. Um, you know, people do not think religion and science can mesh. So uh, again, it would take scholars who are both religiously inclined, but also want to find scientific proof to be able to see what the advancements are. So for example, in stem cells, there's a new discovery almost every single day. There'll be something new coming up every single day. And that actually brings up more ethical questions as well. And so again, it will be like this, where we will constantly have to turn to the Quran to see what Allah wants us to do and what will be best for us. Absolutely, absolutely. Maida, just before just before uh, you go there as well, just you just mentioned that uh, you know, a lot of the scientists and the scientific discoveries, and the people who actually do them do those discoveries, they they're very secular. They, they they've got nothing to do with religion. But how do you, as a per, as a person of faith, sort of uh, coincide with the teachings of the Holy Quran and then go back, and then tell those people that you know this is actually goes hand in hand with what the Holy Quran has has been saying for, for 1400 years now and obviously does that sort of you know boost you even more to to learn the Holy Quran and then teach people about the true teachings of the Holy Quran as well honestly it comes with knowledge like if you have interest in it you should be the one who actually look up what it is a lot of the times we kind of forget honestly like even i dropped about this got a bit lazy with this didn't read the quran didn't read the translation of the quran didn't know what the arabic was even saying so Mm. first you know we obviously science we're going to learn in schools in our society it's all around us and so it plays a huge role in everything we do and at not as actively pursued or we don't have to as actively pursue it as we would the religious aspect and that will come with your own interest and also understanding that you are the ones the owner should be on you to be able to prove your um, you know why you believe something and for that you will okay so i'm a muslim and you know people say quran and science 
do not mesh. Okay, so now let me find where they don't mesh. It was literally, I was in year seven when I realized, wait, no, they do. Like, you know, mm. they were talking about orbits, they were talking about Big Bang, they were talking about evolution. You know, Quran's not just, you know, a, just a storybook. It is actually a guide for life. And there are so many intricate details. And then if you start at I would say young age, but, you know, if you start when you're naive, I would say, then you and question more your brain is more open to understanding the questions that you have and then the more you question then the more you try and find your own answers and eventually i found those answers in you know the quran in the tafsir in the commentaries and you know i was like, okay that's what i was thinking but it is there and then again because i had that knowledge i was able to link it back to when i learned the science about it mm. so it's kind of like a you know a yin and yang almost because like you're learning the science but you have to learn the faith yourself in my opinion, at least, especially in these countries, yeah. that you can argue for it. I mean, very, very powerful and uh, very inspirational words, especially for the youngsters as well, who are who are in who are in education right now. Thank you so much for joining us, Maida Raja, and uh, speaking Absolutely. to us. Thank you. So obviously, all of our guests uh, this afternoon spoke very eloquently about the teachings of the Holy Quran and how, when it comes to science. Uh, it, it, it proves that whatever the Holy Quran has been saying or the science proves that whatever the Holy Quran has has said is true. A lot of people question the Holy Quran. A lot of people question that, you know, how this and that and this has been mentioned or that has been mentioned or how is this or how is that. But when we look into the teachings of the Holy Quran, as, our, as you know, as Maida just mentioned as well, when you look into the, the, the verses of the Holy Quran, the translation and obviously the tafsir, the exegesis, the... the the commentaries of the Holy Quran, we can actually understand that it's it's it's, it's such a it's, it's such an ocean which does we I mean, we'll say that again that it doesn't have any boundaries. It is limitless. It's a limitless mm-hmm. ocean. In fact, Allah the Almighty even mentions in the Holy Quran that there are so many signs of Allah the Almighty that if the whole oceans, all of the oceans, all of the water which is on earth, if that was made into ink and one was to pen down, write down all of the signs of Allah the Almighty, the oceans will finish, the ink would finish, but the signs won't finish. Even if you brought more uh, more oceans to help it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just proves that all, whatever has been mentioned in the Holy Quran ultimately leads to our recognition of Allah the Almighty. And that is the, the sole purpose of our, of our creation, isn't it? Is to fulfill the rights of Allah the Almighty is to you know is to worship him that is why we actually came into this life Allah the Almighty gave us this life so that we pray to him so that we recognize him and obviously one of the if we if we recognize Allah the Almighty if we give him his due rights we will ultimately be giving or we should be giving human or mankind humans animals all the creation their due rights as well so fulfilling the rights of God and then fulfilling the rights of the creation. That is uh, that is what, how the promised Messiah upon whom be peace actually described the, the, the reason of religion or the purpose of religion as well. I mean, obviously, there are so many other things that we can, that we can mm. talk about. Miracles, prophecies, different things. Uh, I mean, we just, talk, we just t- touched upon a little bit of it, but obviously, maybe in the future, we can talk a little bit more in regards to this as well, but uh, we must draw a conclusion because the the news 
is looming as well. Thank you to all of our guests uh, who took time out and spoke to us today. Um, obviously, to our producers, our researchers, the technical department, of course, you as well, Usman Ali Anjum. It's been a pleasure presenting with you. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace be upon you all.